0: Welcome to Talking Beats. I hope you'll subscribe and give us a 5-star review on Apple, Spotify, or anywhere you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash talkingbeats. That's patreo ncom slash talkingbeats. We believe now more than ever in providing a platform for individuality, free thought, and a diverse range of views. By supporting the show this way, You'll get early access to episodes, bonus episodes, and much more. And remember, the conversation is always active at Talking Beats Podcast on social media. On today's program, we're speaking with Bruce Hoffman, counterterrorism and homeland security expert. He's a senior fellow at the council on foreign relations and has been studying terrorism and insurgency for four decades in addition he's a tenured professor at georgetown university's school of foreign service where he's also the director of the center for jewish civilization the author of a number of books on terrorism he's here today to talk about where we are as a country leading up to the election November 2020. What is he seeing around the United States? What trends is he following on the far right and the far left? Bruce Hoffman is here to tell us.
1: Well, what one sees now, I think, is unprecedented. Uh, There's growing divisiveness and polarization that certainly existed at the start of this year and has been growing for some years. I mean, one can trace this insofar as there's an original sin to the invasion of Iraq, I think is where this cleavage and this really uh, intense partisanship first took hold. But of course, it's been growing. Uh, The COVID-19 pandemic and the lockdown that we've more or less been living under over the past seven months has certainly exacerbated that. And then precisely at a time when you have a vast majority of the population often against their will, locked in their homes. Um, we had the killing of George Floyd, and then the protests and demonstrations, a minority of which have turned violent, but which have captured, I think, the country's attention at the time of a very intense and competitive presidential race have all combined, I think, really, to create a un- very unusual confluence of events that, that that is very worrisome.
0: To use the word unsteady and shaky, those seem like uh, understatements. I- wonder how strange it is for you looking at the confluence and the strange mixing of this summer, the the lockdowns that sort of went throughout the country in various stages and various degrees of severity, uh, combined with the social unrest, with protests in every city and every state, some of which turned violent. There were police killings. uh, There were uh, the shooting in Kenosha, Portland. How, how strange is it that all of this is happening in the context of a pandemic uh, which isn't going anywhere? Well,
1: it's we're facing very complex phenomena piled on top of one another, each of which would be challenging enough in its own right. But then, of course, the one thing you neglected, superimposed uh, on top of everything, is, of course, the mass uh, proliferation and ubiquity of social media, which in many instances has created exactly the most amenable environment for the purveying of sometimes the most outlandish if not the most coarsest and offensive conspiracy theories which is also driving i think this sense of unease and unrest as well i mean i'm old enough to remember 30 years ago, 40 years ago, uh, the advent of the internet when we thought it would be an engine for enlightenment and education. But I think as everybody's finding, particularly in this very complex and compound situation, where as you described, I mean, there's multiple things going on that have exerted a centrifugal pull on our society. You've got on top of that, just this, the pervasive, and ubiquity of false information, of untruths that nonetheless, because of their endless repetition, because of this almost endless feedback loop, have attained a degree or a mantle of veracity that's completely divorced from reality, but of course has served to inflame and to, in some cases, energize people, not always in the right ways.
0: How much of what you're doing now focuses on on social media, just to, to give an example, I, I had on uh, a few weeks back, Suzanne Spalding from Center for Strategic and International Studies. She's, she spoke very chillingly about these bizarre situations, uh, first in Germany, and six months later in Idaho, in which there were supposed attacks by supposed Syrian refugees that actually never happened, that were pushed on social media, the one in Germany was being pushed by a Russian troll farm, sort of uh, inhabitant, uh, that there was a rape that occurred by Syrian. This is a f- familiar story, and that almost replayed exactly in Idaho. It turned out there, there was there was no there was no attack. The whole thing was amplified and distorted wildly by accounts that had a lot of followers online that were basically non, non-existent, factually. How much of what you're looking at has to do with pure fabrications like that, that suddenly gain enormous groundswell online?
1: Well, you know, you've hit the nail on the head. This is the problem, is that more and more people today are getting their news, are deriving their information not from traditional mainstream media sources like newspapers or respected radio news programs or television news programs, but are getting it in a very undigestible, unedited often format um, from a variety of different platforms that have absolutely no adherence to any kind of editorial standards such as we would associate. So it's impossible now from my perspective as a terrorism analyst to study the phenomena without paying immensely close attention to social media and to the internet. I mean, this has afforded the purveyors of conspiracy theories, of untruths, of racism, of anti-Semitism, of xenophobia, homophobia, Islamophobia, um, everything. It has provided them with an almost limitless platform that whereas years before it might have been restricted or curtailed or muted now it's it's unfortunately like a bullhorn.
0: It seems very strange to, to ask, but is there anything to do? Because it, it seems like the ship has already sailed in a sense. I, I get the easy remedy is to have people get their news from a place that isn't Facebook or Twitter. That's the easy remedy. How do you convince 330 million people to not use social media to get their news? Isn't it too late? What can you
1: do? No, you're absolutely right that uh, we're in very much of a reactive mode and trying to, whatever metaphor you want, walk the cat back, put the genie into the bottle and, and so on. But that's not to say that there isn't signal action that could still be taken that could bring some semblance of reasonableness to this process. I would argue that really until the uh, horrific killings in Christchurch, New Zealand, uh, by a white supremacist who attacked two mosques and, and murdered over 50 people. That was finally, that's only two years ago, that was finally when many of the social media tech giants first started to really pay attention and began to walk back their own perspectives that this was, you know, and should be, it's not like normal media, it should be an unedited platform, FCC regulations, for instance, don't apply to them. And there's a simple reason why they started to look at this more seriously because countries other than the United States that don't have to contend with First Amendment issues and freedom of speech Uh, the United Kingdom in particular, uh, France, and also New Zealand and Australia, began to talk about legislation directed against the tech giants, against social media. And that in turn, especially as other tragedies followed, such as the Poway synagogue shooting, uh, the shooting at the Walmart in El Paso, uh, has caused greater introspection and also has motivated Congress to intervene much more. So I think we're just at the tip of of beginning to come to grips with and identify and address these problems. We've lost many years. You're absolutely right. But that doesn't mean that, we sh- that we're we powerless or that we shouldn't be taking these steps.
0: Uh, the, the widely accepted definition of terrorism ha- has to do with the fact that that a, a single uh, event is trying to impart a larger political message, uh, to dis- basically to scare the general public based on, on one small thing. It, c- it carries a, a, a larger a larger message with it than this, this one attack. Is, is, is that a fair summation?
1: Yes. No, absolutely. I mean, it, it's fundamentally political. It's designed to have far-reaching psychological effects. And indeed, as you apply, it's not just violence, but the threat of violence that breathes life into terrorism, that gives it its power to create fear and anxiety.
0: Well, where is the line between uh, violence and terrorism? How do you... Bruce Hoffman, when you look at all of the news, all of the happenings, all of the threats, uh, where do you decide "This, this is in my purview and this isn't?
1: I think the most important thing is you look at the nature of the act, not the identity of the perpetrator. And if it's things that are violent, killings, shootings, bombings, arson, vandalism, kidnapping and so on. It's very clearly terrorism. The line where it is between just beer talk or idle chatter and a serious conspiratorial plot is more in the legal realm than let's say in the ter- the terrorism analyst. And again, for terrorism to have its power, it's not just the physical act of violence. It's not just the victim. It's or the target. It's the target audience or the wider almost um, Uh, A vicarious number of victims that terrorists hope to intimidate, coerce, and get them to behave in a different manner than they would have had they not been confronted, not just by the actual violence itself, but by the possibility of that violence.
0: Uh, Let's talk about the election. You're talking about the possibility of violence. Uh, The election is coming up very shortly. Uh, We hear about poll watchers. We hear about a monitoring of the polls. I I personally have n- have never been in a situation that that didn't feel completely normal, g- given my 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 normal life as a musician. I've often voted absentee. Had no problem when I voted in person. I I walked up. I did uh, the thing that you you picture is a traditional manner. I I I say hi. Everything's pleasant. There's there's a nice civility in the air and I go vote, and and I leave. But that's not the experience a lot of people have, and that's not the experience that a lot of people are going to have next month. What is going to happen? How worried are you about the Tuesday that is election day?
1: First, I mean, you're describing the America we all grew up in, the America that we cherished and one has to hope that it's not gone forever but certainly this election as you as, as you rightly suggest has introduced a number of factors that are just just never not only never happened before but were unimaginable i mean who could really foresee a president uh as far back as may i mean long before any voting any polls were open any ballots were being mailed was already talking about the election being rigged already prejudging it
0: well he said that in 2016 as well, to be fair, but, but, but
1: exactly. <laughs> but even right. But, but he's in office now, so he's in authority. I mean, the you know the Justice Department uh, and the Attorney General are his appointees. So it's even more remarkable that that under his watch this could even occur. But the but but this is the point: is that I think very rarely before of Americans being told so far ahead of time that this could be a contested election, especially when it's an election that both candidates have said is the most important, certainly in in modern history. So tensions are certainly high. Um, Whatever optimism I think one may have had was pretty much challenged last week with the arrests in Michigan of more than a dozen men who were charged with planning to kidnap a sitting governor, to try her in some form of kangaroo court, which may well have been code for actually executing her, um, and who were seeking to disrupt the electoral process. in the lead up to the election day. Now, this was a month before. You can imagine the tensions and the anxiety is just going to increase.
0: Let me just ask you personally, uh, when did you find out about it? It, it? Was it the same way that we all did, just in, in a news report or something like that? Or, or did, did you have your eye on it before? That's the first part of the question. The second part is, is w- were you were you shocked or did you see that as, as a culmination of of as an inevitable of the past few months, especially in Michigan, which has had a very strange history uh, through this pandemic with the armed protests in the Capitol, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, the huge rifles around lawmakers, which is totally legal
1: uh, there. W- were you shocked? Sad to say, no, I wasn't shocked. I, I wasn't surprised. I was, what, what concerned me is that it was happening almost a month before the election and not in the days before the event itself or election day or indeed the immediate aftermath. I think like many people, um, I had seen numerous reports and people expressing fears of violence or of disruption depending on the outcome of the election. Although I have been very worried in the lead up because when you have individuals or groups of individuals or collections of individuals saying that they are going to show up at the polls armed when you also have a president that is encouraging this, it's not the America I grew up with. It's not the America that, 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 that I knew. And of course it's very worrisome. I mean, I don't think there's any reason to have armed people showing up at polls or at state houses, not in a democracy.
0: Do you think a state can require poll watchers to be unarmed? Is is this something that's going to come up?
1: This is one of my concerns, actually, because we don't really have a clear idea of what will happen and what will be in place on election day. Um, for instance, in the state of Virginia, there's 3,000 polling places. You know, Multiply that across 50 states. I mean, you're talking about tens of thousands or well over 100,000 polling places. There's roughly 16,000 uh, local law enforcement uh, jurisdictions. This is going to put enormous pressure and present enormous challenges to those who are charged on a daily basis with maintaining the safety and security of Americans. So I'm hoping that they're paying very close attention to this.
0: Let's talk about uh, the Boogaloo Boys. Boogaloo sounds like a a silly, charming kid's game or something. It's not. It's rather sinister. I I just want to read a a little quote from from something you wrote recently about this. Uh, You wrote, Bruce Hoffman, even more worrisome are the open calls for revolution and outright sedition by the so-called Boogaloo Boys, that's B-O-I-S, incongruously attired in brightly colored Aloha shirts with combat webbing, ammunition pouches, and assault weapons. These radicals await or actively plan for what they call the coming Big Luau or Big Igloo, a new American Civil War. Between February and April this year, there was 60% growth of Facebook pages and groups advocating sedition. The number of groups peaked at 125 with over 73,000 followers before Facebook banned these pages. Obviously, they're somewhere else now. Who knows? Can you expound on this? What is this?
1: Well, it takes its name, as you suggested, from something much more anodyne. It was a, a not very mem- memorable uh, 1980s film, Electric Boogaloo. And it's been used as as a code word. I mean, if you start to actively advocate sedition and treason and revolution and civil war, people are going to notice. So it was a way for these individuals to find a place and carve out a niche for themselves on social media, including Facebook, but also other platforms, by using this quote-unquote code you know the boogaloo for example that would produce this uh, second civil war um to describe themselves in different ways as, as as you said boys b-o-i-s to talk about big igloo as meaning the civil war or the revolution um and i think what's what's concerning is that in a very short span of time they attracted a lot of quote-unquote, you know, Facebook friends and followers that ascribe to similar beliefs. And what's fascinating is, you know, one would be tempted to say that this is, you know, a manifestation of far-right extremism, but we also see it on the far left, where, in essence, both extremes see a common goal in a system that they believe the Western liberal democratic state is having failed, as on the precipice of collapse, and where they seek to create and foment precisely the chaos that will push it over the edge and enable them to create whatever new societies they advocate.
0: Talk about the left-right combination. Is is it left far? i obviously I'm implied, the, the word far is implied here. Far left, far right is. Are, are both of those going to Boogaloo? Or or I, I know there there are disturbances. There are there has been violence from both. But but who does Boogaloo
1: attract? It's predominantly uh, a violent far right or a far right um, uh, affiliation or affinity. Uh, it just underscores, I think, the unique the unique situation that the United States is now is that you have extremists on either end of the spectrum that have very different beliefs and want a very different endpoint, but nonetheless have the same perception that the Western liberal state is failing, and that therefore they can mobilize to create the chaos that will prove amenable to their particular interpretation.
0: Here's what scares me as a non-professional political person, a non-professional pundit, but someone I consider responsible citizen, someone who asks a lot of questions. What scares me is that this election is seen as the be-all, end-all, the absolute deciding route of the future of this country rides on the election for both sides. And and what scares me is that it's, it's a doomsday scenario for each side if their candidate doesn't win. This is it for both sides. And that, that seems quite scary when combined with the virus and the unease, when combined with the different social movements that are happening, and when combined with social media.
1: Well, I think that's very true. I mean, it's clearly an unequal threat, but the problem is you have two sides that feed off one another. And that creates the potential for a dangerous dynamic where one side could provoke or goad the other and unleash very powerful forces. That, I think, as you accurately describe at a time when people have it, palpable sense of desperation when they talk about this being an existential election. I mean, again, these are adjectives that I've never heard used at any prior presidential election, but they serve to certainly inflame opinion and certainly to provoke very extremist solutions that may drive people in their frustration or in their disappointment or perhaps in their desperation simply as catharsis to seize on violence.
0: I wonder if if you're someone who looks at terrorism and and you you've spent obviously a lot of your career looking abroad looking uh, at, at various situations in the Middle East for example uh by the way the instrument above the Beethoven score uh in my in my shot is a wonderful uh, instrument. I don't know how to play it but it's an instrument you've probably heard called a rababa it's an arab instrument uh, this was a Bought in Jordan, but it's, it's they they played this one string rababa in Yemen. They played in Palestinian territories, all all over. It's a wonderful sounding instrument, uh, but I like it there above above Beethoven because I it's a nice yin and yang. Uh, I, I maybe one day I could learn how to play some Beethoven on it. <laughs> Bruce Hoffman, I, I wonder as you 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 look back at, at what you've done in in the Middle East. You've looked at patterns in Europe where there's been terrorism. You you're looking here right now. How? strange is it for you to suddenly have this be the focal point right, right down, down down, the block from you in, in, in your, at the capital, I assume you're somewhere around D.C., that's it. You're not looking at Saudi Arabia. You're not looking at Hezbollah.
1: Is that strange? It's extraordinary, extraordinarily strange, and actually, you've identified something I've been thinking about the past few days. Fifteen years ago, a little bit more than fifteen years—well, exactly fifteen years well, exactly 15 years ago i was an advisor to a multinational force headquarters in Baghdad and helping to plan the security for the first ever democratic election in Iraq in January, uh, two thousand and six, um, and or maybe it's two thousand and five, actually. It's extraordinary to me to think that, just as we feared in Iraq, that armed people would show up to intimidate voters at polling places, that people may try to vote twice. In Iraq, they had a very simple solution. They dipped your thumb in purple ink, and therefore you knew that you, you had voted. Um, Abu Wasab al Zarqawi and Al Qaeda in Iraq had threatened any Iraqis who vote, knew they saw the purple finger that they would execute. But none of that happened. The elections, because of the security um, planning, both by the Iraqi security forces and the interim Iraqi government and by the coalition forces, we had a, a peaceful and a successful election. I mean, The rest of the transition in, in Iraq towards democracy has been bumpier. But the other day, I was just thinking, it's remarkable that some of the same concerns that I entertained 15 or 16 years ago, um, I would have never imagined that I would have the same thoughts in the United States and that some of the same images or some of the same challenges that we had to work to secure voting in Iraq. uh, These are the types of things that I'm sure those in authority in the United States are very concerned and worried about in ensuring that election day passes without any disruption. And certainly without any violence.
0: I want to take you away for just a minute and talk a little bit about music, because as you know, I always talk to people about music, no matter who they are on on this program. And uh, sometimes I have interesting things to say and sometimes less so, but everybody loves music to some degree. Or another. And I remember the, the, the very funny uh, sort of um, confession that Dennis Ross made uh, here when, when he said, You know, I have to tell you, I haven't told anybody this ever. I, I blast country music in my car and I know all the words and I, I sing as I'm driving around. I know all the words and I, I sing loudly, but no one's ever heard this before. Don't tell anybody. That was what Dennis Ross said. Do you have any, uh, anything uh, similarly incriminating?
1: Well, I am a huge fan of country-western music, uh, absolutely. Uh, But I'm also a huge fan of all music. Uh, This is kind of a joke in my family. I have absolutely no musical acumen, but I love music. Music has been around me my entire life. Uh, Classical, reggae, hip-hop, rock, jazz, blues, I I listen to it all and, and, uh, and love it. I would say, though, in anticipation of speaking to you, i had thought what would be my absolute favorite piece and i would have to say that it's probably vivaldi's uh, cello i think it c or e minor it was music that was used in the in the the famous a Stanley Kubrick film, Barry Lyndon. There's this is beautiful scene that Martin, Scor- Martin Scorsese has seen is, is said as his favorite scene in the film. It's kind of the courtship between Barry Lyndon and Lady Lyndon, and it's just beautiful. That cello and that uh, that and Ave Maria uh, by Mozart just bring me to tears.
0: Good, good good, taste. I, I like it very much. All, all the reggae, hip hop are, are all wonderful too. But Vivaldi, someone on here recently said that, that, that Vivaldi, she said, Vivaldi got me through undergrad at Princeton and now it's getting me through the pandemic. Uh, and and it's true. It's music. of uh, Vivaldi, you, you really can't help it but just smile. It's, it's just such wonderful, fresh music, Vivaldi. And he, he did write more than 500 concertos, but they all are different.
1: Well, I write my books to music. Interestingly, the the most recent two, I, I wrote uh, listening to classical music, mostly the local music station in Washington, D.C. We're incredibly fortunate. We have WETA. But interestingly, the book I'm writing now on violent right-wing extremism has been almost exclusively country-western music that I've been <laughs> listening to in the background.
0: I, I, I see. So, so it goes, follows you country to country, I guess. So how informed is your new book going to be by what's happening now? I imagine it's difficult to, to write anything without the next day having to go back and 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 almost amend it because things change and evolve so quickly. For example, I, I don't know when you started the book, but but take Boogaloo, now, now fairly common in our, our, the national psyche, but a year ago, not so much.
1: Interestingly, I started my career as a terrorism analyst uh, 39 years ago, and my focus was on violent far-right extremism. Then in Western Europe, particularly in West Germany and in Italy and in France. Then it shifted during the 1980s and certainly through the 1990s to the same variants in the United States. Uh, Like everyone else, um, after 9 11, in the past Nineteen years, I was very much focused on the threat from Salafi jihadi terrorism, from Al Qaeda, and subsequently um, ISIS. But earlier this year, and in fact, I have to say, since the since the um, the, the tragedy at the Tree of Life synagogue in Pittsburgh, um, in, in, in um, a couple of years ago, um, I started once again returning to where my career essentially started, and I decided that there was a need for a book that would show the progression from especially the early 1980s, when we were in a similar place that we are uh, today, disillusionment with with elected political leadership and with the quote-unquote system. Of course, in the late 1970s, early 1980s, it was because of the prolonged U.S. military involvement in indochina particularly the vietnam war today we see similar things because of the 20-year-long war against terrorism fought in originally in south asia but then in the middle east now in various parts of of africa um uh, nascent xenof- xenophobia that in both eras have manifested themselves into anti-immigrant sentiment uh, the growth of conspiracy theories as well um, an uncertain economy. I mean, all these things which came together in the first modern wave of this extremism in the United States 40 years ago are present today. And that's when I decided, in essence, to, to write this book and to show the continuum that we've seen over the past 40 years, but also to underscore, as we started this conversation today, how social media has so decisively changed Political communication generally, but also unfortunately, has raised the stakes for violent communication, which is in essence what terrorism is.
0: Where does anti-Semitism play into all of this? We don't hear a lot about anti-Semitism from the the big news media. It's uh, it, it's an old trend. It's 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 uh, fairly trendy now to be very anti-Israel, which obviously uh, bleeds very easily into anti-semitism, but but how, how prevalent is, is real anti-Semitism running through, coursing through these different movements right now?
1: It's always been the background noise, but I think it's been amplified recently and one can see it in a lot of the social media that attended the COVID nineteen pandemic, which unleashed Xenophobia, anti-immigrant sentiment. I mean, basically, it was a a license to unleash all kinds of hatred against all peoples. But what's often interesting is that uh, the age-old scourge of anti-Semitism surfaces very quickly and often achieves a prominence that many find quite surprising, especially in the 21st century.
0: Give an example of, of something that that you think has, has been been surprising to you when, when you see it it's, whether it's an old anti-semitic trope or sort of a a, a morphed uh, myth into the 21st century give, give an example of, of something that you saw uh, online that that both surprised you and and, and maybe didn't.
1: Well, Jewish people being blamed for for uh, infecting others with the COVID-19 pandemic, which harkens back to the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century when Jewish immigrants arrived in the United States from Eastern and Central Europe and were also accused of spreading disease and of infecting people with various maladies. Uh, but I was surprised how quickly it surfaced at the beginning of the COVID pandemic and some of the historical tropes and memes of anti-Semitism uh, that were being related to Jews of having either caused this because of lack of cleanliness or venality, or in that sense, having caused it to profit from this, to invent a cure that somehow then the Jews will corner the market on that that very quickly these surfaced and became very pervasive as indeed did xenophobia, you know, uh, prejudice against Asian people. I mean it all went it all went hand in hand in glove.
0: Do you think it's too late for the big companies, Facebook, Google, etc to to do something to quell whatever is coming in November? And, and, and I say that knowing that, that this is a, a one of the most difficult topics knowing it's not not exactly your your purview to, to opine, but if you would opine and, and also considering the fact that this isn't all going to calm down on November 4th right? I mean, I mean, it, it seems very fair to assume that whatever happens November 3rd, uh, November 4th, November 10th uh, are going to be pretty dramatic as well.
1: First, let me just put it in the broader context. Ter- our response to terrorism, historically, every country's response basically is always reactive. Um, political leaders, society in general, are often averse to taking serious the threats and challenges until there's an actual act of violence or at least some major plot is uncovered. I think last week, Michigan uh, was precisely the awakening that many people needed. So generally, the way we respond to terrorism is always closing the barn door after the horse has already um, fled. So in that sense, you know, that now tech companies and social media are scrambling is not surprising, but it's never too late. And I think certainly going forward, uh, society has to learn from the challenges, perhaps even the mistakes, but has to learn the lessons to ensure that the sense of uncertainty, the palpable sense of fear and anxiety that is felt in many corners of the United States is not serially recreated in the future. And that we do move to a place where we could hold elections and not be discussing the potentiality of armed people showing up to ensure that, that balloting is conducted in a fair way. However, they might interpret it what fair is, especially when they are not representative of, 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 of sworn law enforcement officers uh, or election authorities.
0: Do we need a big national project to deal with threats to democracy that, that didn't exist when you were coming into the field? Do we, do we need a, a serious apparatus here? It seems a little
1: hodgepodge. In my view, the, there, there, there are a number of building blocks and stepping stones we need to start on. One of them, I would argue, is that the law hasn't kept pace with technology, for example, and that the power of social media the ubiquity with which it can be broadcast is something that we don't need necessarily to stifle or restrain, but at least have to have a much more prudent discussion given the reality of our times. And as you've pointed out, the effects that it's been having on this election so that we arrive at a place of greater respect for differing views for the same confidence and stability that we once had, um, that all these things i think have to be tackled head on now
0: you seem optimistic should you be more worried should you be more worried about the election i I'm, I'm looking at let the, this ar- this article you wrote when when you said many of these groups are heavily armed anti-government anarchist white supremacist just a whole range of views and and according to one estimate there's more than 300 different militia groups with as much as 15,000 to 20,000 well-armed trained members uh are you painting too rosy of a picture in, in your description you just gave
1: well it's, a, it's an interesting question because i just wrote an article that the editors uh put their own title, and the title was Pessimists Live Longer. So it's weird that I'm accused of a rosy viewer of being too optimistic. <laughs> Although in this case, and especially as someone who's been trained to send a story, and I do believe that we can learn from history, and that that's the challenge of modern uh societies is to is to learn from history no i mean this is this is you know one reason the book that i'm writing is trying to put this in a broader historical perspective to to show there were times when there were active terrorist groups not more amorphous collectives as we have now that the united states was able to very effectively deal with i mean it requires political will it requires a societal um interest in in in, in addressing these challenges uh, frankly, as an American, I don't see how I could not be optimistic about it. Of course, of course, we will prevail. But that doesn't mean that I'm not profoundly worried. But this goes back to, I think, Thucydides' famous quote from the Peloponnesian War, that if you want peace, prepare for war. And that's how I view things, is that one should not have a dew-eyed, you know, halcyon view of the world. But at the same time, one shouldn't be driven to abject despair. I mean, that's clearly just as uh, untenable.
0: What should the average American who just wants to go through election day as normally as possible, what should they do? Should they get up, go vote, and go home?
1: I think first and foremost, they they need to have a voting plan because there are so many different ways to vote. And so many of those ways will be dependent upon their own personal health, uh, their age, their mobility, and so on. So firstly, think very seriously about how you want to vote. And then secondly, acquaint yourselves with your state's laws because every state has very different laws. Um, And then I think the most important thing is the gift that we were given by our founding fathers is the vote to express our political preferences on election day. And no one in the United States should ever feel intimidated or hesitant to do so. Historically, we know that there are people people that have. I mean, certainly in the Jim Crow South, there are any number of African American citizens that were completely disenfranchised. But once again, I can't not but see history as a story of progress. And if we're not going to learn from the past, and we're, then we are doomed to repeat the mistakes. So I would say on election day, people have to vote and have to have the confidence that their vote will matter.
0: Professor Bruce Hoffman, pessimism, optimism, everything in between. I thank you very
1: much. You're very welcome, Daniel.
0: You've been listening to Talking Beats with Daniel Lelchuk. I hope you'll subscribe and leave a review on Apple, Spotify, or anywhere you get your podcasts. The original theme music for this program is by Ronald Markham. The content coordinator is Nathaniel Mose. Doug Christian is the executive producer. I'm Daniel Lelchuk. See you next time.